Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made For More podcast. It's Ali Nitschke here and I'm pretty excited and a little bit blown away by today's guest. I first came across her at an event. She was one of the speakers that I was emceeing the event for. And what I loved so much about the topic that she spoke about was her refreshing approach to leadership. She's quite disruptive uh, in her sector, which is always uh, something that I can get behind, a little bit of leadership disruption. But I've just uh, got off the the recording with her and she's an absolute powerhouse, far more than I could ever have imagined. And it was an absolute delight to have this guest on. So I will introduce her and then uh, listen in because this is a goodie. Make sure you have your notebook ready. So today's guest is Dr. Eva Balin-Vanuk, SA Government's Chief Information Officer at the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Eva is responsible for the strategic leadership and delivery of critical whole-of-government technology and cybersecurity services for South Australian government. In order to benefit citizens, businesses and public servants, Eva's team enables more than 100,000 public servants and 30 agencies to provide important services to the South Australian community with secure and resilient infrastructure, platforms, and systems. So if you are thinking that this is a a talk about IT, it definitely is not. This is an interview about leadership and Eva does not disappoint. Prior to this role, Eva also worked for Microsoft in Europe, Asia, and Australia, including uh, as state state director, rather, for Microsoft in South Australia. Eva has a PhD in innovation and entrepreneurship from the Uni of Adelaide. With her thesis, focused on financial viability of not-for-profit social enterprises. Eva is also a trustee of the History Trust of South Australia, director for Novita and founder of Her Tech Path Incorporated. If you are thinking she sounds like an absolute powerhouse, you are right. Uh, Let's dive in. Make sure you've got your notebook handy because this one is a cracker. Welcome to the Made For More podcast. I'll be sharing my experiences along with some actionable advice to take your leadership to the next level. Introducing your host, it's me, Ali Nitschke. I'm a leadership and courageous conversations expert, a Nutella lover, a mother of four young boys, a wife and a dance floor junkie. I'm here to give you the motivation you need to level up, lead yourself, lead your team and your business. Let's go. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made for More podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Eva. Hello, Eva. How are you? And welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ali. Such a privilege to be here. And I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So you and I crossed paths uh, late last year, actually, at a conference and you were one of the speakers on stage. I was emceeing and I was absolutely blown away by your messaging and your leadership. And I knew as soon as I heard you speak that I wanted to have you um, so that you can share some of the amazing successes that you've had throughout your career uh, and I'm sure some of the successes that you have in your future as well. Before we get too far into it, I would love if you could share with our listeners and our audience, where did you come from and where are you going? Oh, the big existential questions. Um, (laughs) So um, I'm an Adelaide girl. Uh, My grandparents came after World War II, so I'm the product of uh, Eastern European families. Um, 
uh, went to uni here in Adelaide and then promptly went to Europe. Um, I wanted to work there. I was really fortunate. I got a job with Microsoft in Vienna um, as an intern. I was the bottom of the food chain. Um, best year ever. I met my husband there. Um, he's from Europe. Um, so we were there for five years in Vienna, had an amazing time, travelled, um, went to uh, Singapore. We were there for four years. Um, and then moved back to Adelaide where my husband and I both did PhDs. Um, and then I returned to Microsoft um, after that to um, in my final role with state director. Um, and then five years ago, I joined SA Government. Wow, I didn't know that bit about Vienna. I uh, I also met my husband at work. I think you know, there's something to be said about finding finding good people in the workplace. We'll leave that conversation for another day. So you originally started in tech. Now you're um, working in government. So tell me, what was the allure? How did you make that shift? Because that's quite different, Microsoft to um, government. There's a whole whole another yeah. kettle of fish. Uh, tell me what what sort of what's been going on. Yeah, so look, I actually did a marketing degree. So international marketing was my major. And uh, when I joined Microsoft in Vienna, it was in a marketing role. Ah. Um, and then over the years, um, I took on team management roles um, and, yeah, more on looking after sales teams, lean Sigma work on refining our business models. Um, and then when I, after my PhD, um, I came back to Microsoft, I took on a, um, an enterprise sales role. Um, I really thank my boss who took me on um, because I had never sold to go- never sold to government before, had never been in a formal sales role and had almost no network in Adelaide, um, uh, but clearly I did okay. Um, I then became state director. Um, and so in a way, I've kind of moved from one very big machine. Microsoft is a very big, exciting machine. Government's another really big machine. Um, I operate well in these organisations um, and I'm really here because of I think I probably know more tech than I give myself credit for, but it's it's really about how to, how to get results, how to get impact, how to bring people on a journey and how to make sure we're really delivering the services that our customers need, not what we imagine that they need. Oh, that's a good one. So I, I want to backtrack a little bit. So yeah, working around lean processes for those that don't understand what that means, if they haven't been in uh, Project World, can you share quickly around <laughs> lean uh, and lean Sigma work? Yeah, so look, that was exciting. We were looking at our our sales model um, and how we worked with external parties. And Lean is really around uh, process, not just process understanding, but process optimization. So really understanding what's the current state and what's the to be state. And my focus is really um, on how do we get people to change into a new way of working that is, you know, cuts out inefficiencies, improves productivity. It actually delivers value faster in a in a chain. I know that's probably not the formal de- definition, but um, yeah, that's what we really um, strove to deliver. And you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think um, you know, I've got a little bit of background in tech. I can you know, I, I loosely say I can tech speak, but more so the conduit between going, <laughs> can we have this button over here and can we make it talk over okay. there? But it's interesting that uh, often we think tech is so much around the coding and the process, whereas in actual fact, and you've probably come to realise this as well, is that it is the people. Um, so tell me a little bit around the transition from, you know, looking after and working within the big machine that is Microsoft and now transitioning into um, government, although you've been there for a number of years, is it the people that you think that um, gives you the biggest pull or, or what's been your biggest challenge so far um, working in government? Yeah, look, I, I will admit um, it, it was a culture shock moving uh, from a very large, very um, 
you know, focused on profit, shareholder value, bias for action, driven for results, um, organisation to government. Um, and from, there are amazing people in government. Um, I've, I, I, I value my colleagues. I learn so much from them. Um, but there's a different layer, different layer of governance, um, of legislation, of things that in the private sector you don't have to think about. Yeah. Um, so managing that. And I think the other really big difference is in Microsoft, um, you're rewarded like financially for delivering yeah. value. Yeah. And there is no way we you can't offer bonuses or payments to people in government. So I bake, I bake caramel slice um, and I bake gingerbread and I bring that into the office because that's my way of, of giving a personal thank you um, to my yeah. team um, to acknowledge their hard work and to thank them that, you know, that I, as their leader, have spent time in my private life to make something that um, demonstrates um, that I value their commitment. Um, I got some really amazing advice when I started in government, which is don't, don't lower my standards. I have very high expectations of my team. Mm. Um, and you know what? People, people rise to the challenge. Um, some people will self-select out, they'll get on a different bus, there is mobility in the public sector, people can choose to go to another agency, take on a different role. Um, I have now people who are actively um, approaching members of my team and saying, hey, can they get a job in, in our division? Um, because we've really managed to turn that culture around. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think when we start talking about culture and the impact that leaders have, and when your when your own team are getting questioned in the lunchroom by how do we how do we get in how do we get in on this and how do we get in on the caramel slice, um, <laughs> and although that's only one you know small aspect, and for for some of some people you know making a caramel slice might seem like you know a bit of anno an annoying thing to do on a weekend or inconsequential, but I think there's a, a direct link between food and uh, engagement. So carry on with the caramel slice and the gingerbread because it's a it's a winning formula for sure. There's something else that you mentioned um, around a piece of advice, and I think there's always a, a gold nugget that new leaders or people that are newly appointed to a role receive. One of mine in my early days was, um, don't come to me with your problems, come to me with your solutions. And it really yeah. shifted my mindset around problem solving. Now I'm a phenomenal problem solver, very, very thankful to that early person, uh, early influence that I had back yeah. in 2005 or something like that. Um, but you mentioned that someone shared with you, don't lower your standards and you've got very high expectations of your team. So tell me a little bit around uh, that. You know, obviously it's culture shock. I've gone from private sector to government as well, and I can agree there is definitely a culture shock there. How did you go about that? Was it guns are blazing? Was it gently, gently? Did you sit in and kind of get a lay of the land? Or what was your approach to going, well, I'm not going to lower my standards, but also a bit of a culture shock. How do I bring people on the journey? Uh, look, I'm never guns blazing. I, I think, look, my, my, the boss who hired me at Microsoft in my state director role, um, he said, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Mm. And that's yes. another really important one. Um, keeping a call, like, you know, I really believe that as a leader, so some people say, oh, you're the leader, you can do whatever you like. <laughs> my response sure. is, as the leader, you must assiduously follow every single rule. Because yeah. if you don't, why should anyone else? Yeah. So, so that means I have to keep my cool. I, I need to stay professional, calm, respectful, be curious. Um, and I, one of the, so when I, well, I, 
I was approached for this role and I wasn't persuaded. And then I got persuaded that it was a great thing to, you know, public value and all that good stuff and give back to the community. So as part of the, the recruitment process, I needed, I did a Hogan's psychometric assessment. Um, they're very robust. Um, they talk, there's three elements. There's how do I behave every day? Mm-hmm. One is um, how do I behave under stress? Mm-hmm. And the third is what drives me, what, yeah. what motivates me. And one of the really interesting aspects of the results that I got is that I am very even keel. Mm. That means no one ever has to walk on eggshells around me. The day someone is worried about something is the day you come and tell me about it because there's no bad day to tell me. The, the day you tell me is the day you're worried about it so we can fix it together. Yeah. And so the way I started my, my leadership um, in government was to be open about myself. This is who I am. I'm your leader. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to say I'm going to do things and I'm going to do things. Um, I'm going to help paint a picture of where we're going, what our purpose is. Um, in the first, um, that first, so I started in February and before Christmas, um, I ran a workshop around values. And the underlying message is that we've all got our own values and we need to respect that. But the underlying message is everyone here is valued. You are valued. You are valued because you bring talents and expertise and knowledge to the role. How do we leverage that? I need you to feel safe here. I need you to be able to feel that you can raise problems, um, that you can ask for questions, that you can admit when you don't know how to do something because then we all grow together. So I think I was extremely vulnerable and I was very mm. open about myself but also but my character so that, you know, at the end of the day, people want a leader that they can they can rely on. Um, I think leaders who are, there are people who weaponize positions of authority. I won't even mm. say they weaponize leadership because I don't know that the leadership is there, but they weaponize positions of authority. And what I mean by that is they always remind people that they're the most important people in the room. Their behavior is contradictory. One day they're really nice. The next day they're probably snarky. Um, they give mixed messages. They give one instruction, retract the, you know, and then people just don't know what to do. They're living in a culture of fear and uncertainty and no one's going to do their best work. So if you like, I've de-weaponized <laughs> leadership yeah. Yeah. to be really vulnerable and be a person that my team knows they can rely on when I say I do something. I will simply do it. I'm here for them. That's my job. Wow. I mean, all of that to me sounds like integrity. You know, you talk about being consistency, going, I'm coming in and I'm going to do the right thing. Um, I'm always going to be here. Let's catch it, call it. If there's a problem, tell me straight away. Let's have that psychological safety so that if there's a problem, it's not a problem and you're going to be in trouble for it. It's a problem. Let's fix it and also share and learn so that next time, if this happens, hopefully not, if this happens, we know what the solution is, but we can also identify it early on. And I think that that to me screams integrity. And I don't think we have enough of that uh, in the world. And you're very right around the weaponizing positions of authority. Um, I've, I've read something recently around uh, leaders and their motivation for leadership is there's only about 23% of leaders that are in, you know, have a leadership title that actually want to lead people and actually invest in the fact that they are responsible for the well-being and the output for their people. Uh, the the other portion of the other two-thirds are around, you know, positions of power. That's why their leadership next natural step in terms yep. of financial gain and of course uh, power, although sometimes that's that's well hidden. So when you're talking about, you know, some of these things and running a values workshop, which is unheard of, you know, in, well, maybe it's not unheard of, that's a bold statement. 
it's not often not done in government uh, in government agencies where we're going, okay, well, let's talk about the people part of the team and, you know, even individual values alignment, I'm, I'm sure many of them hadn't assessed that historically themselves. Mm-hmm. I know when I've run values uh, workshops, it's been like, oh, we've never done this. I've never taken the time to think about what's important to me. And you think, oh, okay, well, how do we unpack some of that and get them on board? Uh, when you, and you might have to cast your mind back a little bit, when you did run those values and you talked about respecting each other, did you notice a shift either in the room or sort of directly correlating to that piece where people got on the journey and recognised, you know, where they were going in terms of alignment and also some of those that were going, you know what, this is too hard. Actually, I've realised that I'm out. Uh, look, um, so I, I think actually it was really interesting because that values workshop, Ali, I'd been there maybe 10 months. Mm. I think it was the 10 months of me being consistent mm, that mm-hmm. then added weight to the fact we did a values workshop. They, they realised this was actually just consistent with me because I'd yes. spoken about it. And so if I think about that first year, and I was like, honestly, imposter syndrome, it is a thing, terrifying, yeah. <laughs> um, because actually I realised like I'm, I have such a direct impact on the quality of these people's lives. Yep. Do they come to work feeling scared that they're going to be, you know, told off or somehow humiliated or feel shame at what they're doing? Or are they going to come to work and go, oh, okay, I don't quite know how to do it, but you know what? Ali just says we can always ask for help. And so I think actually that values workshop um, was kind of the reinforcement that actually mm-hmm. this, this is a real thing. And the culture has just continued to evolve and you know, the way that colleagues support other colleagues is just amazing. Like a, a really small example, one of our, our, our one of our leaders, um, his wife um, had their little baby um, two weeks early. Um, and honestly, I kid you not, within two hours, the team's organised flowers. Yeah, love it. <laughs> to the hospital, like that genuine care for yeah. the other. Um, one of our colleagues uh, during COVID, her whole family was struck down. It was incredibly stressful for her um uh, the the team self-organized and actually collected money to go and get groceries for her because she was struggling so much not that she couldn't afford groceries but she was just so stressed with looking after her family yeah so i mean they're, genuine they're the people care. i want to work with yeah because yeah. we actually support each other and there's a sense that we've got each other's back um and yeah i i think we've, we've got our little oasis here and I love coming to it. And people are trying to break in. They're trying to join <laughs> the team and get get on board, get yeah. on the Oasis. No, it's, I mean, and I think it's remarkable the work, um, the work that you've done to turn around not only your team, because whenever there's a new new leadership on board, there's always that, you know, forming, storming, norming of someone new coming in. It's a new way of going. And then you've also gone, okay, well, for me to be able to survive and thrive here, consistency is key uh, and, and bringing them along on, on the journey as well because they've probably gone through a huge shift in their own development as well as how they yep. work as a team. And that must be remarkable to look back on and go, yeah, I think we're going all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, years ago, I remember a, um, a leader said to me, you know, leaders act as they must, not as they feel they should. Oh, have you heard that before? Yeah, that's a no. That's an interesting one. Act as they must, not as they feel they should. No, that is actually a really important distinction because leaders have obligations. Mm-hmm. And think back to where you talked about what's someone's motivation to be a leader. Um, there's other research that says that people, reluctant leaders, 
are often the best leaders because they're reluctantly and you know also leadership's not a position like it's I've got you know ASO threes who are leaders because they role model behavior that people respond to yep so yeah and but I think there is I think people sometimes misunderstand I can be the boss I can do whatever I like as I said before no 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 I'm the one that must abide by all the rules because I was, I'm being hypocritical how can I expect my people to follow a rule if I'm not even going to do it myself yeah I love that. So tell me a little bit around, so your team is uh, held to high, high standards uh, and high expectations, which I think is remarkable in itself. How do they go then now that's the culture of we work really well together, we get in, um, we talk about any problems that might be happening, we're really consistent in our approach. I imagine they're great problem solvers as a team. How do you go working across different areas uh, or different sections and divisions within the department and even cross across departments as well when your team is high flying and perhaps they're encountering teams that are less evolved in terms of their uh, leadership journeys <laughs> it's a bit of a loaded question Ali look um the the main <laughs> function actually of my team is we are a whole of government provider so yeah. We actually provide the um, fundamental and underpinning technology platforms, platforms and services and cybersecurity services across whole of government. So mm -hmm. I have 30 plus agencies who are my customers. They yeah. are all important. And what's been amazing is that as I've worked with my team on our culture, our relationships collectively with agencies and authorities has really has really grown um, and developed. And, you know, if you think about it, like if you've got a, a central service provider issuing instructions and no support, what's your level of respect? Not yeah. much. Whereas if you've got a central service provider saying, we'd actually like to know what matters to you. What are your strategies? Um, you know, my team and I, my exec team, we have a quarterly call with every, with of the major agencies quarterly mm. with, with their CIO and their leadership team. Yeah. And so, so there's a lot of access to me and my executives. You know, they get to they get to, you know, their team, the officer level in government, can have can ask me questions as an executive director about what are we doing about certain things, and that's being open. That's saying, and sometimes we don't have the answer. And you know, these calls are thirty minutes. You're not solving the world in thirty minutes, but it's opening the conversation to what else do we need to explore together? How else can we help? Or maybe quickly answer a question or. Can you, you know, do they say, can you expand on your strategy? How are you approaching things? How do we work together? And so I think, again, that's consistent. <laughs> it's been years mm. in the making. Mm. Um, and that, I think, builds a sense of reciprocity. So agencies come to us with issues. They come to us with problems. They come also with solutions on how do we work together to evolve things. And I think that's the public value we're adding. Like if my team can help be a bit of the glue and support and we can find efficiencies and stop agencies maybe going down a path that isn't going to be valuable or if we can get them to leverage an existing infrastructure investment, well, that's better for the taxpayer dollar. So mm -hmm. how do we, the role that we can play to help government be more effective and productive because we're a well-oiled machine, I think that spills across because then my people can also listen and be curious and also empathise, you know, if things are hard in an agency world. How do we help you? Like we're we're only here because we have agency customers. Without them, we don't exist. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds a little bit like your approach has become infectious. So I hope that, so. That whole reciprocity, um, reciprocity—that's tongue-tie for me. Uh, yeah. You know what a game changer in, in when you're talking about how do we work collaboratively and how do we work for the best possible outcome, not just for yeah. one independent agency, but for everyone across all 30, yeah. 30 plus. You know what. 
what an amazing way to um, get that collaboration happening. It is well. hard. It is hard, Ali, because because sometimes um, our team we have to make decisions that an agency won't like, mm. and they won't like it because they want to do a certain thing. And my obligation, my team's obligation, though, is to look at at a whole of government level. Mm. So if an agency does want to do a thing that makes perfect sense to the agency. But yeah. we can see there'll be a detrimental impact or some risk that it causes, yeah. then we're unpopular. Yeah. But that that's our role also. So our role, you know, our role is not to be friendly with everyone and we say yes to everything. Our our role is as custodians. And that's that's a tough gig sometimes. And I have to say, some of my peers completely acknowledge um, no one's arm wrestling me for my job, by the way. <laughs> ah. They know it's a hard gig. I've got 30 plus customers. To yeah. look after, support, balance, prioritise needs, requirements, um, very tight budgets. Um, it's, yeah, it's, some people just go, wow, oh my God, that's hard. But I, I find it extremely satisfying. And the people that we've got, we just want to make a difference. And we we feel that by operating at that kind of really central level, we have the greatest possible impact and help as many as possible of our agency colleagues. I love it. So it sounds, and you said no one's arm wrestling you, which, um, <laughs> You know, it's always a surefire sign you're on a good thing. Uh, what do you do outside of work to kind of decompress? Um, we know that people have been under a lot of pressure. We know that work, uh, you know, the the boundaries of work-life balance can sometimes be quite blurry. Uh, I know I've certainly fallen victim to, you know, some 10, 10 I was going to say 10 a.m. emails. <laughs> I'll let your mentor answer your emails at 10 a.m. You know, 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 12 p.m. What do you do to kind of put some boundaries in place but also to rest and recover so that you can get up and do it the next day and get up and do it the next week? So my first answer is I have amazing people in my team. Yeah. So that means I can actually sleep at night because I've got really capable people who are doing their job, who are enabling their people to do the job, who are enabling their people to do the job. So Brilliant. I think there's a real there's a real concern if number one is doing number two's job, number two is doing number three's job, and then I'm like, well, who's doing number one's job? Mm-hmm. So so I, you know, I uh, about just over a year ago, um, I have, I, you know, built my current leadership team. I mean, it was bonkers. I was trying to do the jobs of two of my directors. Yeah. Impossible. Like, and honestly, it was exhausting, Ali, because it, it was too much and I don't have all the knowledge and expertise. And, and since having, you know, my full complement of directors, um, I can do what I'm really good at and my team can do what they're really good at. But, yes, decompression really? is good. Um, so I do I do um, so I have a family, um, got two girls, and um, I love baking, <laughs> hence the caramel slice. Um, but for me, um, I'm extremely passionate about our sector. I, I just, so I'm not a technologist from, uh, from obviously qualification, but I'm, I've chosen to stay in the tech space because I fundamentally believe Technology is changing the world. It's changing mm. in all facets of our life, how we live, work and play. And we need diversity because if you think about the way AI is developing and chat GT, GPT and all these new technologies, we need to make sure that there is a, a diverse representative group of people who are creating, developing, um, engineering these solutions because otherwise biases get built in and that's not good for society. So I'm I'm super passionate about, um, you know, improving the gender diversity in in STEM, and I, I founded a nonprofit some years ago um, that really is about how do we how do we how do we inspire girls <laughs> to think about a career yeah. in STEM because we need that diversity. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. And I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit more around her um, her tech path, which you are the founder of back in, in 2016, which is absolutely remarkable. But I'm just sort of thinking about tech now in 2023 versus tech in 2016. Were you a bit of a an early adapter, do you think? Or is it just now that we're so saturated and we have so much accessibility that Yes, we know tech's coming. Yes, there's AI. Yes, there's VR. Like, there's all these things coming. But to me, it seems like it's popped up all of a sudden. You've been in the tech space for a long time. Cybersecurity, we won't even touch on that today. That's a conversation for another day. But back in 2016, was there a significant gap that prompted you to go, actually, we need to get better representation across the tech space? And that's how her tech path came to be. Tell me a little bit around what happened back in 2016 that prompted it. Yeah. Well, um, so probably wasn't as um, as evident then. Um, but what happened was that I was frequently in meetings and I was the only woman in business. Yeah, meetings. right. I'm like, no, no. I'm like, there are amazing women in the sector. Where are they? Yeah. Um, and so effectively I, I got together a group of the women that I'd engaged with. Um, I organised a very nice lunch with the chief scientist um, at the time uh, Dr. Leanna Reid, and uh, she shared some pretty dismal statistics which show that the number of girls and young women going into STEM degrees was actually declining. Yeah, right. And it was this, like, heartbreaking moment of, oh, my gosh, we can see the potential of this industry. We know this industry is changing the world. Mm. We we have to do something. And so we did, sorry, as you imagine, if you've got, I think, 12 or 15 of us, you can imagine we had, like, a 1,000 ideas Yep. I'm a big believer in focus. Uh, you can do 20 things extraordinarily averagely or not at all, or you can do two things really well. So yep. her tech class does two things and that's it. Um, number one is we build community. So women in the tech sector, um, we're an open, inclusive community. Um, it's, you know, fill your cup, meet some other women in the same boat as you. We have a mentoring program. We have mentoring events with amazing women who share the stories of how they got to where they've got to now um, and, and really nurture and support Um in COVID, I mean, you can imagine COVID was super hard. Um, and what we started was just uh, a lunchtime call online and no agenda. And we were just like, wow, so what do you do about mental health? Um, what happens when you're supporting children home who are being, you know, at school or locked down? And yeah. how do you manage a hybrid workforce? Um, like just really vulnerable conversations. So we still continue those. We have some themes like talking about microaggressions and micro accommodations and bringing new ideas into the mix. Yep. So that's one. One is community. The second one was universities too late. Like girls have already chosen by the time they're at university. Yeah. So let's we've got to get into schools. So we developed a proposal, a, work, a workshop package um, that we um, was originally two and a half thousand girls in our first three years of operation, where we where we engage with girls and as visible role models, we rocked up to their classroom and um, we told them about you know the amazing um, things that women have invented and contributed to the world, like you know, Kevlar Bulletproof Vest and Heart Surgery Adhesive and Ada Lovelace, the first programmer and windscreen wipers and, you know, rotary engines, all invented by women. Um, And then we shared our stories and girls could ask questions and they ask hard questions, Ali. Um, What's your plan B? What did you study to do your job? Have you experienced discrimination and harassment in the workplace? Um, Do you earn the same as your male colleagues? How do you balance family and work? Like girls switched on. So that was the that was like V one if you like pilot. Then COVID happened, and we've updated our workshop materials to be super inspiring. They don't want to hear about the gender pay gap, girls. They don't want to hear about older women being the most vulnerable to homelessness in our community. They they want to know 
that they've got a role to play. And so yeah. we've incorporated the Ikigai Canvas. I don't know if you know that. I do know the Ikigai yeah. Canvas. Yeah, that's oh. wonderful. Love it. Anyway, so that's what we do. So it's, it's reaching girls and we want to inspire them that, that, yes, here are women who are doing some amazing work and you could join us. I love that. So is that for primary school or high school aged? Uh, it's at the moment girls. for high school just yep. because I think primary school, need, you need like a hands-on, hands-on robot thing to build and we don't have that kit. So the cheapest option is our army of volunteers who all have a working with children check who are trained mm-hmm. on our materials and go out and and inspire. And oh my god I'm I get so invigorated when I get to speak with girls because I'm like oh my gosh look at the opportunity and the potential and all these amazing girls and young women who are gonna you know help change the world it's amazing yeah I, I totally agree I mean I've got four sons so coming at it from from a different perspective be nice wow. to the girls boys um but also I just think children these days are so savvy not just tech savvy but savvy across a whole plethora yes. of topics uh, my kids are just in primary school but the things that they come home and talk to me about around sustainability and environmental change and climate change and what we need to do and mum by the way we need to go and get a worm farm and, and all of these things and I think when I was nine I did not, I was not, I did not have the capacity. We weren't having those conversations. And I can imagine that you're having some very, very mature conversations with uh, with these girls that are looking for yeah. like, yes, I've got an interest in tech, but mm, I've heard and seen some things, whether it's through the media or whether it's through their own experiences. And to yeah. have you and your army of volunteers to go in there and go, actually, here's what's possible. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, you already know the just the the inspiration and yeah. the change and the trajectory of yeah. their lives and, and where they go on to go. So that is oh, amazing, amazing, and leadership in its own own right as well. And I had no idea that a woman invoted, invented the rotary engine. I have to let my husband know that yeah and a dishwasher and an ironing board and medical syringe and liquid paper (laughs) liquid paper what do you use that for no yeah i know i know a thing that was invented that we no longer need because actually you press the delete button yeah now you press the delete button what do you what do you mean you could actually white out something no that ah i mean it's amazing it is amazing when we stop and and take a step back and go actually let's let's just do a quick calibration of all of the incredible yeah. things uh, that are available to us in the past that have been forged by shoulders of giants in the past. Absolutely remarkable. Absolutely. So I reckon that's probably a good place to ask you your top five tips for leaders, you know, either if they're new and emerging yeah. or something that you wish you knew way back when, uh, when yeah. you first started okay. your journey. You're going to have to keep me honest on five. Um, okay. I really... <laughs> Just fundamental, and this is what I, you know, when we do the workshops with girls, I think it's so important as a young person at any age really, but the earlier the better, to know what your values are. Mm. What do you stand for? Because when you know what you stand for explicitly, Mm. you can be true to yourself. Yeah. And that then gives you, I think, courage to act when it's hard to, but you know it's the right thing to do because you've you've got your true north. So I just think figuring out a way to know your values, um, the earlier the better to know what, what you're guided by. Um, so that's definitely the first one. Um, I go back to um, have high expectations and set high standards. People will rise to the challenge. If you accept mediocrity, you'll get mediocrity. If you mm. expect excellence, people will strive to do their best and they'll strive to grow. Um, vulnerability. I think as a leader... 
we need to be vulnerable. That doesn't mean you break down and cry in the office, um, but it means you, you share what you are willing to share of yourself. So not obviously mm-hmm. every gory detail about your personal life, but the things that will give your people confidence that you have their back. Yeah, You're yeah. going to help solve their problems. You will never throw them under the bus. You will back what, what needs to be done. Like that's so important. So it's that vulnerability to build trust really mm-hmm. um, with your people. Um, catch more flies with honey than vinegar. <laughs> I love it. That one, you know, though, oh my gosh, I, um, there are times when I, you know, I do, when I have really difficult conversations I need to have, I do a, a morning walk um, really early um, and that's kind of get my steps up, but also clear my head. I will rehearse conversations I have to have. I will also say the things I know I can actually never say, but I feel better because I've said it to myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that means I can have my equilibrium and yeah. be calm and be respectful and um, do all the things that you have to do um, and that helps people. And then I think really um, uh, the fifth one was really about um, if leaders don't follow the rules, why should anyone else? Oh, God, I love that one. I think that's five. Yeah, that is five. I'm just writing it down so I can recap for you. So we've got fundamentals. So this is around um, your values and knowing what you stand for and, and uh, your true north and what you're guided by. And I think that is an amazing an amazing top tip and how often do we get to the end of our lives or midpoint in our, our careers and go, mm, I've got no idea what it yeah. is. I've just been rolling along. Uh, holding high expectations. And I can imagine that this is a message that uh, you share with your her tech path uh, community because yes. I think you know often it's easy to lower expectations and not rock the boat or hold hold yourself high and uh, people will rise to the challenge such a good learning and leadership lesson uh, sharing your vulnerability and the vulnerability to build trust absolutely key in this day and age and the future of leadership of course because we know that it's all around connection and the people yeah. part of business and catching uh, more flies with honey than with vinegar I I mean I love that it's so it's so true and uh, easier to do right it's easier to be kind and to be nice and yeah. um, get what you want than it is to play the other card and uh, if leaders don't follow the rules then who else will bang love it thank you Alex. <laughs> mic drop bang mic drop um so uh, i'm sure there are many listeners that would love to learn a little bit more about her tech path and how they can either get involved in the community um perhaps they're looking to become one of your volunteers um and even just learn a little bit more around what is ahead for her tech path how can they get in touch or find out more about that? Where's the, where do they find you and it? Amazing. So we're on the worldwide interwebs, uh, hertechpath.org. Um, our website's got a ton of materials. And look, if you have, if you are a teacher, know a teacher, have went to a school, have kids who go to a school, you probably know a teacher. Um, all schools can book a free workshop on our website. Um, and also there are buckets of materials for parents and um, parents and caregivers. So how, how do I even talk about STEM careers with my child, my young person? Um, there's resources for educators and teachers and there's resources for young people. Um, so hertechpath.org, there's booking and contact forms all over the website. Um, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Amazing. I'll put all of the links in the show notes as well as a link to some of the Ikigai stuff as well. I um, oh, forgot amazing. to elaborate on that, but we'll, I'll put a little image in there. 
as well. Eva, thank you so much for coming on today. You're an absolute inspiration uh, to new and emerging leaders and definitely setting uh, a higher expectation for leadership and what it means in 2023 and beyond. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ali. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode on the Made For More podcast, please make sure you subscribe to receive future episodes. And of course, five-star reviews are always welcome on the Apple podcast. If you'd like a copy of the show notes or any of the links mentioned today, check out madeformore.com.au forward slash podcast. And of course, if we aren't connected already, you can find me in all the usual places. Ali Nitschke on LinkedIn, Ali.MadeForMore on Facebook and Instagram. I hope you have an awesome week and I'll catch you again soon. Bye-bye.